0: All right, let's take our Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 22. 14 through 22. Does anybody need an outline? Anybody come in kind of after the time who might need one? Do we have some folks who have some outlines? Richard, do we have any left over? Do we have any back there? We do have some, so just keep a hand raised. They're they're coming to you. First Corinthians chapter ten. Do we have some more? We need one up. Do we? have... Some other folks? All right, follow along with me as I already beginning in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? In order to get into our text tonight, I'm going to ask you to do something. It may be a challenge. You're full of pork. It's a thing. Thousand percent humidity outside, alright? And so, this may be a challenge, but I need you to kind of engage your imagination for a moment. My preaching professor always said, never ask people to do that. You know what I think about people in positions of authority, right? Alright, so, he's not the boss of me. So, that's what I'm going to have you do here tonight. Imagine, we need to go back to first century Corinth. So I want you to imagine for a moment, perhaps you've made your way outside a freshly clean batch of togas to hang up on the clothesline. All right, I don't know if they did that, but let's imagine that's what you're doing. Okay? And as you're out there, your neighbor stops by. Hey, Scott, just wanted to let you know, down at my temple, down here on the corner, uh, we've got an event tomorrow. It's going to be great. I didn't know if maybe you'd want to go with me. It, there's going to be... You know, some good food. There's going to be great music. There's even some athletic events to follow. I think you'd enjoy it. Why don't you come along? Well, you've gotten an invitation like this before. In fact, I mean, you remember the days when this was a regular part of your life. Going down to the temple. And you understand what this means. This is not a church. This is a temple to a Greek god. Just think, wow, free meal. Music. Sports. I'm in. Next day you wake up, make your way down with your friend to the local temple. Because in first century Corinth, there were temples in Corinth like there are Baptist churches in New Bern, All right? All over the place. It's all kinds of gods. Sure enough, as you get there, a party's already started. The food is and drink is flowing. It's the best that you've ever had and everybody's having a great time. The music is as good as it gets. Lively, energetic. People are not only enjoying one another. There seems to be real kind of fellowship and connection. I mean, this, this is a great meal sitting around this, this table with all of these others. And, and, and you notice that a couple of folks go off and you wonder what they're going off to do. But nonetheless, you think, wow, this is a great day. And the, the meal is great. The music is great. Then the announcement is made time for the games to begin you make your way to the arena and sure enough you see a display of athletic ability and skill like you've never seen before it it is indeed a great time now on your way home there's a little twinge of guilt i mean you were again you you came out of this you're now a, a believer in jesus christ and you're part of a Fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ, but you know this was your neighbor, and and you still have these relationships with other people, and so you thought, you know, what harm could this do? Besides, you've been taught an idol is not even a real thing. There's no actual God behind that idol. Surely this isn't that big of a deal. So you kind of tamp down your guilt, go to bed. You get up next day. Well, it's Sunday, and so you're off to church you gathered there in a the house of one of the elders. But you notice something's a little bit different. As you walk in, there's a bit of a buzz. And you realize that bit of a buzz is about you. The whispers. The chatting. The the, the, the quiet turn of the head. There he is. And, and as you stop, you can hear what they're saying. That Yeah, that's him. That's Scott. He, he was the one who was down at the temple. That's right. He was down there at the temple with the rest of the pagans eating the meat, listening to the music, even went to the games. That's him. In your mind you're wondering what have I done? What is what is happening here and you realize that the action you have engaged in is now not only a source of discussion at the church but you've even heard from the 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 newer believers, perhaps the weaker and less mature believers. Some of them now have really started to struggle. Is it okay for me to go back to that kind of paganism and idolatry? I mean, Scott did it. If Scott did it, surely I can do it. I mean, it is good food, and there's a lot of other things going on I'd like to do again. And and the music is great. I, and if if what what everybody else is saying is true, we're we're believers. We're covered by grace. Surely isn't that big of a deal. Now, I bring up that potential scenario. Obviously, I've used what preachers call a sanctified imagination, all right? To say that it actually would have gone down precisely like that, maybe not. But this story does does give a hint at what underlies Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. Now, up to this point, we've addressed one ethical issue as it relates to idols, food, and what was going on in 1st century Corinth. We've talked about the problem that some were having. Do I eat meat that had been offered to idols? Well, come to find out, that wasn't the only ethical concern. It wasn't just, you know, if, if I go to somebody's house and they serve meat, do I need to ask where this meat came from? Interestingly enough, Paul's going to return to this question in verses 23 through the end. So if you've ever wondered if when you go to a dinner party, you need to ask your host, did you sacrifice this meat to an idol? This will answer your question, all right? By the way, I would ask that and see if anybody in New Bern is. My guess is they're going to say no, but just in case, all right, you never know. But we're going to get to that next week. Instead, Paul is addressing what seems to have been a bigger problem in the church. And that is, there were the, the mature ones, right? The, the the leaders of the church, those who claimed to be wise and, and, and faithful. It seems that some of them had so convinced themselves of this thing called Christian liberty. Had so convinced themselves that because they were covered by grace... They could, in essence, indulge in ways that really seem inappropriate. It seems that some of them had convinced themselves and others, I can go to these festivals at pagan idol temples and participate all that I want. Again, we don't know all the details of how this was happening, but clearly this was. that you had members, you had those who were believers in Jesus Christ, who were still participating to some degree in in this this kind of pagan activity. And they were justifying it. We'll, We'll see this in this text. They were justifying this by, in essence, saying idols are nothing. If I go down to the temple to Aphrodite or to Dionysus, or if I go down to the temple of Poseidon, by the way, all of these are in Corinth, if I go down to these temples and there is a statue or idol of Poseidon, it's nothing because Poseidon doesn't exist. This was their theological justification. These were smart people. And so they were suggesting, so, so what if I eat of this meat? So what if I sit down at the table with the rest of these pagan worshipers? So what if I sit there and listen to their music? So what if I participate in their games? Is that really a big deal? 1 Corinthians ten fourteen through 22 says, you better believe it is. It's a massive deal. This is a major issue. And in the church of Corinth, Paul's going to make sure they understand just exactly what it is that they are doing. Now, up to this point, here's the appeal Paul has made to these believers. Go, going all the way back to chapter 8, You know, Paul first appealed to these mature believers who were doing things and saying things that were offending and hurting weaker brothers and, and who were in essence telling those weaker brothers, Get over it. Just get over it. I'm more mature. You should be like me. I don't care if this offends you because I'm the wise one here. So chapter eight, Paul really appeals to brotherly love. If, if you love, in other words, as if Paul is saying, if you love Christ, if you and if you love your brother and, and sister in Christ, then what you'll do is stop doing what you're doing that's so offensive to them. Just stop it for the sake of the weaker brother or sister in Christ. You will restrain your Christian liberty. That's not it. Chapter 9, he then makes a bigger appeal. He uses himself as an example and says, and maybe for the sake of the gospel itself, to restrain your liberty would, would only be a benefit promoting the gospel. It makes you a more effective minister of the gospel. And he, as he gets to the end of chapter 9, he then also makes this statement. He says, in fact, I'm so committed to this, I discipline my body. I I buffet my body is the old language there. In other words, I, I I beat it into submission. I don't want to do anything that would disqualify me. And so in chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, he gives another motivation to these folks. One, another reason why you shouldn't you know, make too much or abuse Christian liberty is because that could be a, a pathway to even greater sin. And he uses that generation that came out of Egypt as the ultimate example. People who made, who took for granted their relationship with God, assumed everything was good, Uh, And as a result, found themselves succumbing to temptation and facing God's judgment. So now, as we get to chapter 10, verses 14 through 22, and you see the way it begins in verse 14, therefore, this is a summation, therefore. In other words, he's about to make a concluding argument here. He's he's wrapping this up that goes all the way back to chapter 8. And the reason why we know this therefore goes all the way back to chapter 8 is because of the context. He's bringing up this whole thing of meat and eating and idols again. So so now, now he's going to bring all this to a point, bring it all to a head, and he's going to say, and if none of those, if none of those motivations move you, if you're not motivated by brotherly love and by the advancement of the gospel and by the dangers of sin, maybe you'll be motivated by the fact that every time you waltz down to that temple and you eat of that meat inside that temple, you are worshiping demons. Now, I don't know if that gives anybody else pause, but it should, right? It should. Even for us in our day, when you think, well, Pastor, is this really an issue? I mean, I don't know... How many temples to gods that we have around here? Is this really a problem? Well, idolatry is still idolatry. And so based on what Paul is saying here, even in our more modern, sophisticated forms of idolatry, at the end of the day, idolatry is an act whereby you worship demons. Wow. I don't know about you, but I'd like to know a little bit more about this, because that's pretty stunning, is it not? I mean, that's kind of a striking idea, and one that maybe we've not really wrestled with all, all that much, to suggest that really idolatry is demonic. Idolatry is demonic. And this is what he is going to flesh out. Now, as we turn to 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22, so if you want to you know, take notes, um, I've, I don't know how far we'll get here uh, tonight. Um, but uh, we'll certainly get it get it by the end of next week so so Paul's going to sum this up in essence by imploring the reader to flee idolatry in all of its forms flee idolatry in all of its forms fundamentally because idolatry is an act of worship not to some other God but by default idolatry is not worshiping the one true God and scripture as we talked about on Sunday mornings only gives how many paths five. Seven, three, two. The path that worships God or the path that worships Satan. You're either blessed or you're wicked, right? You're 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 either you're either producing godly, righteous things or you're cursed. And this this will bring home this Sunday, by the way, as we finish Psalm one. So the same would be true here. If I'm not worshiping God as God is designed, if there is idolatry still residing in my heart and mind. Then I need to appreciate the fact this is fundamentally an act of satan worship. I might as well tattoo 666 on my head, listen to heavy metal backwards and paint pentagrams on the floor, all right? That's what we associate with satanism, isn't it? From the 80s in particular, that's what we associate with it, when instead it's a lot more subtle than that. Every act of worship that's not a god-honoring act of worship is satanic. Even if it's good, Even if it's kind, if it's not God-honoring, then it doesn't matter. Then it doesn't matter. So this is the danger that I think he's pointing out here. And what Paul is going to drive home is he's going to say, as a believer in Jesus Christ, one who is walking in fellowship with Jesus, you should avoid idolatry in all of its forms because to engage in idolatry is to, in essence, abandon this relationship with Christ and align yourself. With Satan and demonic worship. So, as we take a look at this tonight, and, and probably again next week, how do we then deal with with idolatry? Uh, why is this such a big deal? Well, let's consider three issues. Three issues about why idolatry, uh, why Paul is addressing this so aggressively, and uh, then you know how how we bring it uh, bring it down to bear on our lives. Number one, I think the first principle we see is understand the danger. Understand the danger of idolatry. Again, I think sometimes we play with this. We don't really appreciate. You know, We, we all understand. I mean, you're a Wednesday night crowd, so you understand this language. You've heard this language. Uh, modern day forms of idolatry. But I don't think we appreciate just, just how problematic it really is. So, verse 14, Paul stresses this. Paul is as, 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 as emphatic as you can get. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from. it. Now, I, I I love how Paul begins this before he gets to the you know to, to what is a very vivid and striking imperative command here. He he inserts this word my beloved, and I think that's significant. One is a term of endearment. John loves to use this, by the way. If you read John's letters in particular. Uh, He's always referring to brothers and sisters, referring to them as, as as beloved. It's one of his favorite terms. So it is a term of endearment. And it is a way for Paul to say, the instruction I'm about to give you, I'm going to give you because I love you. Now, how many of you know that if anybody ever prefaces instruction to you by first saying, now, I'm telling you this because I love you. What usually follows that? Whew, some pretty difficult words, right? And in other words, why why would you preface it? If if you're not worried, I'm about to tell you something really hard. All right? It's not like I, you need to come up to me and say, Pastor, I want you to know what I'm about to tell you, I'm going to tell you because I love you. I'm going to give you a pint of ice cream every week for the rest of your life. No, that's not what follows, right? I mean, that's not usually what follows that statement. Somebody comes up and says, I want you to know I'm, I, lo- I love you. And so what I'm going to tell you, I'm telling you because I love you. Usually, it's some kind of admonition, right? Some kind of very pointed, you know, thought provoking kind of issue that, that, that he's going to consider. And then, so then his words that follow that, uh, again, are rather vivid. He says, flee. Flee from my doctor. Now, there's no, there's no misunderstanding this, right? There, there's, there's no, uh, There's there's, there's no confusion about this term. To flee, to run away, to get away from as quickly as you can. And what's interesting about this verb form, because of the form that it's in, in the original Greek, it means flee and continue to flee as a constant state of living your life. Flee and then flee every other day. So when when you go to bed at night and you think, whew, man, that was a tough day of running from idols. Guess what? Tomorrow morning, get up and run again. Next day you get up and run again. That, that's that's the tense that this verb is in. So this should be a constant state of life. Uh, of life that I am in constant flight from idols. How serious he was about it. It, it. Again, it it is it is it is a striking image. And here's what I think. Here's the takeaway I think from this. Now because we should never stop running from idolatry, I, I only find really a couple of other phrases where this is used. Paul used that same term earlier in the book when he said flee from temptation, in particular sexual temptation. That's about the only time you see this phrase used. That suggests to me this is particularly dangerous. Idolatry is particularly dangerous. And I think I noted when I gave you my recap of my uh, my sabbatical, I read two books uh, in particular that both of them in essence said the same thing, uh, and that is idolatry should be viewed as the root sin in every human heart. Because at the end of the day, every sin is ultimately a worship of self anyway. That idolatry is indeed the primary concern. And it is, it is the most pressing threat to Christian growth. Idolatry. What we mean by that, and we'll, we'll define it a bit deeper here in just a moment, but anything that robs God of my affection. That doesn't mean other things we, we ignore. We can do a lot of things. But anything that robs God of what is my ultimate affection. He says, flee from this. Now, I love kind of how he how he then makes it even more emphatic. Notice what he says in verse 15. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. Now, when I first read this, this is going to shock you to hear this. When I first read this, I read this as a snarky comment. Does anybody else see it when you read it that way? All right. I don't think he is, but that just kind of tells you what my weaknesses are. You know it's as if Paul's saying you all are a bunch of wise people aren't you <laughs> right and so you judge for yourselves as it read the subtext I don't have any confidence in you whatsoever so when I read I kind of read it as, as Paul being a bit ironic but come to find out I'm wrong about that all right that's that's probably not what he's getting at Paul was a much better pastor in these terms and so Paul is really a it's not that he's flattering them but he's giving them the benefit of the doubt maybe that's the better way to put it so Paul is saying, so understand, I'm speaking to you as to wise, and some of you may have a translation that uses the word sensible. So that's the, that's the idea he's getting at, not wise as in Old Testament wisdom, literature, proverb stuff. He's saying, I, I know I'm talking to logical, reasonable, smart people here. And so, you judge for yourselves what I'm about to say. Because what Paul's now going to get into, he's going to share why it is so dangerous. But up to this point, he's saying, look, I, I'm, I'm appealing to your logic. I'm appealing to your better senses here. And, and I have every confidence that you will absolutely agree with me when, when we get done here. You will agree with what I'm saying. So it's almost as if Paul's making this more emphatic. All these things kind of kind of come to, together as, as a way to say, this is a really big deal. You need to pay very careful attention to this. Paul doesn't use this language about any other topic to say, I'm speaking to you as to wise men. He's he's really pressing this point. Again, when I when I read this language, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I just think that's such a striking image because to, you know to flee from something. It's not like Paul says, beloved. So, so therefore, beloved, be be really patient and but consider whether or not you should stand there and endure idolatry. In other words, he's, he, he's, he's not giving some other kind of subtle command. He's not even saying something like, you know what, you should really think about moving out of the way. His, his, his only option for them is that they would flee. Here's, here's what I liken it to. So we're going to do another imagine kind of deal. All right? So you're walking in your neighborhood. You come around the corner and you see the black smoke rising. You, you hear the crackle and the pop. You can smell it in the air. You know what's happened. Your, your initial reaction is you're hoping somebody's burning something. But indeed, as you turn the corner, you see that one of your neighbor's house is on fire. Some of you have probably seen this. We ran across this many years ago in our neighborhood, actually. It's terrifying to see this. Now imagine as you're getting closer and hoping that this family has made it out of the house, you see everybody else is safely away, except you notice in the doorway, smoke billowing out of it. The flame's getting closer to engulfing the house. And you see the owner of the home standing in the doorway. What would be your instruction to him? Hey, if you get a second, you may want to go somewhere else. I don't want to offend you. But it looks like you're in danger. So maybe pray about it, consider, you may want to get out of the house. Is that what you do? No, I mean, my guess is you'd be a lot more vocal. In fact, maybe even you'd run up there and drag him out, right? Run, leave. You might have other choice words you'd think if he, stopped, if he doesn't move, right? In other words, you'd want to impress upon him the seriousness of the situation. Now, imagine if he said, but you don't understand. I still have a pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream in the freezer. I gotta go back and get it. Be sensible. As valuable as that is. Be sensible, right? That's not even worth going back for. In other words, your language would be that, which is similar to what Paul's saying here. Flee from idolatry. Think about this. Be, be logical. Be reasonable. Be smart about this. Idolatry is not something that you play around with. Idolatry is something that you treat with extreme action. It is that dangerous and that devastating. Listen, there's nothing impressive, faithful, courageous about trying to stand in front of idolatry and face it. There's nothing cowardly about running from it. You know what this implies to me, by the way? I think there are some, especially based on verse 13. Remember verse 13 from last week? God God gives this great promise, no temptation has overcome you except that which is common to man. God is faithful, provide you a way of escape that you may be able to endure or bear up under it. And isn't it interesting, and we mentioned this last week, then the very next statement, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. In other words, there may be some temptations or some situations in life that yes, the courageous thing is to to bear it, is to face it, is to endure through it. But when it comes to idolatry, he doesn't say that, right? The way of escape is to run away from it. That's the way of escape. So I think the first thing that Paul is impressing upon us here is the danger of idolatry. These folks in Corinth, they should not presume upon their liberty. They they, they should not take for granted this thing because what they are doing, if they are participating, if they are going down to that temple in the midst of that festival and they are eating of that food and they are drinking of that drink and they are participating in those events, they are guilty of idolatry. Well, we we know this. Right, I mean, we understand the dangers of idolatry. At least this kind of idolatry would. In fact, I've given you some other verses. The Bible is not unclear about this. John concludes his letter, 1 John 5:21, the very last sentence. He, he doesn't do any kind of closing greeting or well-wishings like Paul does. He closes it by saying, little children, guard yourselves from idolatry. Keep yourselves from idolatry and idols. That's his last statement in that letter. And all of this, of course, finds its grounding. Exodus chapter 20, the first two commands, I've given them to you there in your notes. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, that's in the earth beneath, or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. And we spent a lot of time, about eight months ago, in the book of Romans chapter 1, walking through verses 18 to the end of the chapter, recognizing in that chapter the primary sin that Paul focuses his attention on that demonstrates the depravity of mankind is idolatry. That idolatry then led to immorality. Go back and read chapter 1 again and you'll see this progression. Paul says their primary sin was that even though all of creation told them there was a Creator, a Creator worthy of worship, a creator of power, a creator who would judge, even though creation told them this. They didn't have to open the first page of the Bible to get it. Creation tells them this. And they give up worshiping that, cre- that creator in order to worship the creature, the creation. Paul talks about how they they, 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 they made things out of, out of wood. And out of metal, creeping things and animals and flying things and swimming things. Almost like he's coming straight out of Exodus chapter 20 to say that this is the very same thing that they did. And their idolatry, they're turning from God in worship, then turned toward themselves. They made themselves their primary idol. In other words, every sin is ultimately a sin of the worship of self. And as a result, they indulged in all kinds of immorality. All kinds. Paul lists out a really striking list of sins that they engaged in. So the command is clear. God's worthy of my full devotion. Idolatry in any form is a threat to this devotion. So, what do we do with this? I mean, we'll we'll get into the rest of it then next week. But what, what do we initially then do with idolatry? Because you may think, well, Pastor, the story you started with, right? Getting us back into first century Corinth. Well, you know, we, we may be a bit more, as I said, sophisticated in our, our idolatry. We may not have statues that we worship. We may not have little carved images that we worship. We may not worship animals, or stars, creeping things. But we have idols, don't we? We've heard this before. Again, Wednesday Night Crowd, you've heard these. What well, what are some idols? Money, right? Money is a modern-day idol, and all that goes with it, material things. Uh, so somebody's job can be an idol. Uh, we recognize personal pleasure can be an idol. We have no trouble seeing that, especially you know along what we would call the sexual immorality stuff. We can see that as idolatry. Interestingly, and I say interestingly, it's sad, but we're seeing the fruition of that, by the way, in our culture today. I, it's, it's hard for us to imagine that we're having the discussions that we're having, is it not? In our culture, that that somebody—and here's here's the irony of this—it's re, it's, it, it's really the, the the contradictory nature of this. Somebody's sexual identity, we're told, is determined by their biology, but their gender is not. Does anybody else hear these discussions and think, am I missing something? Because gender seems to be pretty biological to me. All right. Again, I'm not a doc Well, I'm a doctor, but not that kind. All right. I mean, so I that seems to be pretty significant. But this is what's happening. And why does this happen? Because humanity, when it turns on itself, makes itself its own God. And what do gods do? Gods remake themselves in the image of God, which is themselves. So of course, of course you can decide what gender whatever gender you feel like, right? I mean, of course you can. In our culture. This this is the nature of things. This is where idolatry goes. That is nothing. Listen, church, that whole discussion is nothing but idolatry. It is idolatry. But be warned, believer. You've got good things in your life that can be idols. I've heard plenty of people make their family an idol. I've known plenty of people make their kids an idol. You may find this hard to believe, but I've known people who made church an idol. You say, what? How can people make church an idol when they care more about the trappings of it than the fact that it is the people of God called by God for the purpose of sharing the gospel of God? When people are more worried about the trappings of church life, and these become real serious and and, and things we got to argue about and fuss about, when people do that, they've made church an idol. When you miss the point of church, you make church an idol. Happens. It happens. By the oh, way, pastors can do it just as easily, by the way. So this is this is, this is a fundamental threat. This is why I like John MacArthur's definition. It's there in your notes. His definition of idolatry, this, that this is from his commentary on First Corinthians. He says this idolatry is having any false God, any object, idea, philosophy, habit, occupation, sport, or whatever. That has one's primary concern and loyalty, or that to any degree decreases one's trust in and loyalty to the Lord. That is an idol. You may need to take this home and ponder that, alright? Because that, is, that, that really begins to help you identify what may, may be the idols in your own heart. I mean, what, so what he's saying is idolatry can take real subtle forms. Anytime there's something in your life, be it a good thing or a bad thing, if, if, it, if it takes your affection and your love, and what in essence, because you spend your time, your money, your thoughts, your habits on it, your activities on it, your actions on it, if you're giving this to something in an inordinate kind of way, an inappropriate kind of way, then that thing becomes an idol. It becomes an idol for you. It doesn't mean that thing is, is now just bad. It just means it's become an idol. And that in essence, to, to rob God of devotion of which He alone is worthy, then is, is a real serious threat to spiritual growth. And then I love this last statement here, and we'll we'll, we'll stop with this. Uh, because as he concluded this paragraph, MacArthur then added this statement, Idolatry does not begin with a sculptor's hammer, it begins in the mind. It begins in the mind. Again, I think both these statements are profound. I think the first thing you should meditate on is 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. But I think these two statements then would be worthy for, Folk eye. alright? You can focus on these things in a, in a, in a worthy manner because these, these are really profound. That idolatry is something that begins in here, long before. In other words, when, when, the, the, nation, when the children of, of Israel came to Aaron and they told Aaron, we don't know where Moses is, he's up on the mountain, God's not been speaking to us, so we want you to make us a God. This was not something that started with their words, it started in their minds. So the first place to battle this is in the mind, it's in the heart. And that's why this is such a danger, because it can take root in us, even before it manifests itself. Now, So what we'll do next, we keep, keep this outline, because now Paul's going to make the argument as to why this is so dangerous. How is it that you get from idolatry being an act where really no God is actually worshipped to actually being demonic? Paul's going to draw this line. He's going to use some interesting imagery to do it, including the Lord's Supper. Uh, and, uh, and then he'll conclude with what are some dangerous consequences, uh, in particular provoking the jealousy of God. Which I don't know how you react to that statement, but that seems really bad. right? To provoke God's jealousy seems like something I would want to avoid at all costs. So our first step, though, is to really consider the nature of idolatry even in our own hearts. What is it that resides in me? It's robbing God of his affection. Of my affection, really. Well, what what are what are thoughts that have become embedded? What are some ways of acting? What are some ways of speaking that really do, in essence, fit the category of idolatry? Because this is a serious threat to spiritual well being. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for gathering us. We thank you for this word. We we do ask, Lord, that you would search our hearts. You, by your Spirit and through your Word, would search our hearts. That you would uh, reveal and then uproot like a weed in a garden in, any idol that that rears its ugly head in our lives that that we might then find ourselves bringing these idols to you repenting and 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 growing on in Christ likeness give, give us uh, strength and endurance to flee idolatry and then to get up tomorrow and do it again and get up the next day and do it again. Press upon us what is the seriousness, of the sin. Lord, I thank you for these who come out tonight. I thank you for the blessing that comes. Brothers and sisters, dwell together in unity and come together with one heart and mind to pray and to come under your word. So may we find ourselves uh, submitting to your word and now committing ourselves to living for your glory with the rest of this week that lays before us we know, is already in Your sovereign hand. And so, God, may we be faithful to You and to Your way, be sensitive to the world around us, that we would resist temptation, yet at the same time would uh, would find ourselves engaging with those who are lost uh, with the hope of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask that You'd gather Your people back together again, that we might worship You in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.